black t-shirt guy and All right. subway and the A train. Yeah. You know, you're on a train and it's crowded and somebody starts doing there. Mm-hmm. So he said, I never saw a U-Haul following a hearse. You know, about he was giving a thing about you know you can't take it with you, right? Uh huh. It was a beautiful. That's good. All right. Good morning. And Dan Mario is filling in for Rabbi Linzer while he's at the IRS conference. I think for the next two days. And we are on Ein Gimel Amid Aleph a bit ahead. We're on the second wide line. And before we get into the Gemara, since we have a little bit of time, I just wanted to bring one of the main the main machlokas we've shown him about some of the topics that's come up here, which is the question of suffix question of when there are cases of doubt, how do you pass it? Uh, possibly the most far-reaching uh, and central sugya to psak in practical cases and in terms of how to navigate machokas uh, and all sorts of things like that. And the first important source is from the Rambam. The Rambam at the end of the ninth parak of Hilchotumat Mait, uh, an interesting place. Uh, it's interesting to me that all of the laws of Suffolk um, at least for the most part, find their voice in, in the world of Tumantara. That's because learned from Sota, there's a principle applied to Tumantara, which is Safek Tuma Birshus Harabim is Tahor. If there's some kind of a source of impurity that is doubtful, like maybe the Sheretz is alive, maybe the Sheretz is dead, um, and it's found in a public space, Interestingly, that uh, Rishis Harabim for Tuma is defined just as three people and not as what we would call sort of halachic Rishis Harabim normally for Hilchot Shabbat or something like that in terms of carrying. Um, so in the case of Rishis Harabim, Safek Tuma would be Tahor. We follow more lenient uh, ruling, but in a Rishut Hayachid, uh, Safek Tuma is Tameh. So that's the first sort of set of rules about Safek, and that's both of those rules are within the Deoraita world. And then, as it comes to Safek Deoraita compared to Safek Drabanan by all other kinds of halachot besides Tuma, uh, we have the general rule, Safek Deoraita Lechumra, with biblical laws we follow the more stringent uh, possibility of the, of the doubt, and in a case of a rabbinic law, we could rely on the more lenient possibility in a case of doubt. Now, Charlie is a statistician, so he can talk all about the statistical side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and here we're talking about very simple doubts often. You know, is, I, I don't know. Maybe in certain cases, well, maybe you could figure it out and you wouldn't apply the same kinds of rules. Uh, the Rambam, right at the end of, of the ninth parak of Hilchot Tumat Mate, says, Davar Yadua! Everybody knows this. Anything that we're concerned about because of doubt about Tuma, according to the Rambam, is only rabbinic itself. That means that the principle of being concerned about a doubtful case is itself only a rabbinic law. And the Rambam continues, The only Tuma at the biblical level is if it was for sure Tamei, and he goes on, Aval kol hasfekot, and then he continues, betumot, bein b'ma'achalot asuro, bein ba'arayot, v'shabatot, any different realm of halacha you want, tumantara, or foods, what we would call iser v'heter, arayot, even in cases as stringent as arayot, um, uh, sexual relationships like we see here, and shabatot, keeping shabbat and holidays, any kind of safek, the Rambam says, Ein choshishin lahen sofrim. If there's a case of doubt, according to the Rambam, that immediately bumps it down to a rabbinic prohibition. Question, yes? So that would have halakhic consequences in that you would not ever bring a korban for any of these cases of doubt. Ah, okay, so you asked the Rashba's question. The Rashba has a famous oh. question, and the Rashba says, we know that in halakha, if you have a case of doubt about uh, something that if you did it for sure you would bring a korban chatat mm-hmm. then in a case of doubt you have to bring a korban asham asham talui and therefore obviously the Torah cares God cares whether you've done something that was a safek and the Rashba has a very long piece in Torah Sabayis in the fourth bias in the first shar and he uh, at least to his satisfaction debunks what he thinks the Rambam's approach is but it's notable that the Rashba thinks that the Rambam's source is from our Gemara. We're going to see, uh, I think we already saw a little bit, and we'll see a little bit more today. So let's take a look. Uh, and just to contrast, one other piece of contrast, which is that for the Rambam, there's actually two different halachot. One is case of safek, that is, the case itself is in doubt, 
And there's a different halacha, which the Raman quotes in Hilchot Mamrim, about how the Sanhedrin rules, or how rabbis have to rule in specific cases. At the end of the first parak, the Raman says, If there's a dispute, two different rabbis disagree about something, or two different courts disagree about something. Bizman if there's no centralized authority that's how we've been living now for 1700 years or so or if the case has not yet been fully decided to the Sanhedrin that is either there's no Sanhedrin at all then there's no end to the Machoket or even if there is a Sanhedrin but the Sanhedrin hasn't decided it yet or even if they follow each other generations or hundreds of years later one is permissive and one is uh, stringent no matter what if you presumably anyone reading this or presumably any Dayan who has to decide or any rabbi has to decide on this case if you cannot figure it out you have both opinions and you're not sure if it's a biblical law or a case that applies to a biblical law then you have to be stringent you have to follow the stringent opinion and in the case of rabbinic law you have to follow the lenient opinion now what that means is on a case by case basis or in resolving any specific dispute uh, post Sanhedrin there are no more rules about how to rule the rule is rabbinic laws we're lenient as much as possible and biblical laws we should be stringent as much as possible again this Rambam is much debated and how to apply it but those two issues are often conflated the question of safek and the question of machloket uh, so it's important to know yeah there are things for which there's no machir or makel such as shiram will create a kumra on one right. end and a, and a kula on another end you could be sure that in almost any halachic shayla in any specific case, there may be what we would call machmir and mekil, more strict or l- more lenient. But if the same ruling would be applied to every case and would be relied upon across the board, it would result in both yeah. kulot and chumrot. And that's another important part of the halachic calculus is how to figure out, are you really being lenient or are you really being strict? The case, the, the famous story of Rav Chaim Brisker, uh, someone asked, why is Reb Chaim Brisker so makil on Hilchus Shabbos? And he says, I'm not makil on Hilchus Shabbos, I'm machmir on pikuach nefesh. That even in the most, what we would think, insignificant cases of medical concern, uh, he, he tended to be permissive about calling a doctor or, or using different kinds of, or particularly rabbinic things, and even biblical violations as well. Okay, so we're on the second wide line on Gimel Amid Aleph. So, we saw already the Mishnah had mentioned someone called a Shtuki. Shtuki is someone whose father we do, is unidentified, but we know who the mother is. So this is a, a child with one known parent. The problem is, if the father turns out to be someone we didn't expect, he could end up marrying someone who he's not allowed to marry, and perhaps, perhaps, there might not even... Um, no, he's certainly Jewish, if we know who the mother is. But he might, not, he might be a mamzer. We don't know whether he's a mamzer or not. And he might be a halal or not. We don't know. Okay, so we're right. Stuki first. So Amar Rav, Devar Torah Stuki Kasher. So Rav says that fundamentally, a Stuki at the Torah level, at the biblical level, Stuki would be okay. Now, how come Stuki? Why did then the rabbis have to come up with the rules of Stuki? We're going to have to see. So first, the suggestion is that at the biblical level, Stuki is okay. So we're going to see why. My taima. Why? Rov Kesherim Etzla. Because this woman, we know who the woman is, we know who the mother is, and most of the men who could have been the father of this child are Ksherim La. In what sense? Either that they are not her relatives, or if she is a regular Jewish woman, then they're not Mamzerim, or they're not Nitinim, or anything like that. And possibility number two is what if the men were non-Jewish well then even if the men were non-Jewish the child will end up being a kosher the kosher Jew so well, that's not wrong. I mean the more non-Jews than Jews ah but even if the hus- even if the father is non-Jew it's not a not a problem either it's not kosher though no the child would be kosher kosher yeah sure. we had that uh, a few days like ago some positions that say you know okay so at least but we don't paskin like that we don't paskin that with a non-Jewish father the child is a mom there and therefore Rav already knew that that was the Machokis Tanaim that was decided. So Rava can say, Rov Ksher Metzla. Umiut Psul Metzla. And it's only a minority who are going to be a puzzle to her. So Vi'azla Yinhu Legaba. And even if they would be coming to her, so that means that the man comes to, to join with the woman. So Kol de Parish, Muruba Parish. We can rely on the principle that whenever we take something out of its normal place, we rely on the robe. That is, the man comes from his town and he goes to find a woman in a different town. 
So he separated from the rove of the people in his town, and since the rove of there were Kasherim, then we can assume that the child would be Kasher as well. So Maya Martima Azla Ihi Legabaihu. What? Why do you have to bring in Kulaparish Mayuba Parish? Isn't it like the whole idea that a rove? This is a very good question. These are, this is one of the central places, again, for talking about rove also, Suffolk and also rove. And rove, again, becomes a huge topic about several different lines in Chazal and Acheronims uh, try to pick apart why, what, it, was there a difference between Azlinan Batar Ruba and Rubo Kekulo and called the Parish Muruba Parish. How do each of those different principles about relying on a majority, uh, how do those, what are the subtle differences between them? What kind of cases do they apply to differently? Why do Chazal choose one over the other? So here, called the Parish Muruba Parish, it's because talking about the man left his, his community or his town and he went and met a woman from another town and they had a child. So that's, he was extracted from his locale. So we're going to see it's contrasted to Kavua because if she left her town and went to him, See, he like Abai who have like Kavua. So then, okay, no, I don't know because you don't want to have this uh, extramarital or non—I guess not extramarital, non-marital relationship um, with someone who's in the same town. I don't know. That, I'm not sure. Someone left the street and came into her house. Even there, right. So that even if the man is just coming into her home, that's already is called the parish Parish coming into her home. But if she left and went to him, then that's Kavua, meaning that the man the man remains stationary to the extent either in the same city or in the same house. So the Gemara has two possibilities. Either she went to him or, or he went to her. Is a third possibility they went to a, a motel, a third location. So in that case that's also called the Parish Muruba Parish. Both of them left from the road. We're on the third wide line on Gimamadas. Okay. So, maybe she went to go be with him. So, so then the man will be fixed. And we have a different principle. When we have something that is uh, stationary, the fixed Isur, we consider that to be 50-50 Safek, not a majority-minority kind of Safek. Um, so, in the case of when the woman was stationary and the man was being Poresh from the robe, so then we could rely on the robe. But if the woman goes to the man, then it's considered kavua, and the, the concern will at least be a higher level concern. But nonetheless, the Hatorah Amra loyavo mamzer mamzer vadai hudu loyavo. We know the Torah has a specific exclusion of safek mamzer. That is, the only mamzer who's prohibited from coming to the Jewish people is a mamzer vadai a certain mamzer. But if there's any kind of safek, if there's any kind of doubt about the, whether or not he is a mamzer, then that's allowed. Ha mamzer safek yavobakal. And a safek mamzer is allowed to come in. So according to the Rashba, that's the proof for the Rambam. The Rashba thinks that the Rambam's proof that in general, the rule of safek de oraita lechumra is itself only a rabbinic law is because at the biblical level, safek mamzer is kosher. And therefore, safek anything is kosher, according to the Rambam, and the Rashba disagrees, the Rashba thinks, Safek Mamzer is a special exception to the Torah's general rule that Safek you have to treat stringently. So those are two different ways to read how this Kumar works. Is this a model for every other case in the Torah, or is this an exception? Okay. So, so a Safek Mamzer could come into the Jewish people. He could marry into the Jewish people. So, he's also not allowed to marry into only a Vadai Kahal. That is, that the Jewish people, their level of Kashrut is at a level of Vadai. Um, so the Bekal Safek, Yavo, so even if Vadai Mamzer could marry into a Jewish community of Jewish person whose Kashrut was, was Safek as well. So a Safek Mamzer could marry a perfectly good kosher uh, Jew, and a Vadai Mamzer could marry a Jewish person whose Kashrut is Bisafek. So Those are two possibilities from this Russia at the biblical level. Uh, in the Rashi view, is the Rambam saying that whatever the Torah says, whatever whatever Rosafe says, it says you know only definite things, and not like we're not deriving this from uh, deriving everything else from Mamzer, right? Something like that. And to a certain extent, both positions are based on Sevara. Um, actually, there is one one exception. There's a pasuk in the end of Parsha Shoftim, I think it is, um, talking about when you go in a siege. Um, I'm talking about building a siege engine and which kind of trees can you cut down? And it says, Only if you know for sure 
that it is not a fruit-bearing tree, then you could cut it down. And some Achronim use that as a biblical proof for the Rashba's position, that at a Doraita level, you have to be sure that it's not a fruit-bearing tree. So even a Safek uh, Isser of cutting down a fruit tree the Torah says explicitly would be prohibited. So that's another possibility in the, in the Psukim for support for the Rashba's position. It's extensive debate in the Achronim. Um, okay. So then if the whole point, Rava just told us that a Shtuki is kosher, that is at the Doraita level, Shtuki could marry whomever he wants because the worst he is is a Suffolk Mamzer, and Suffolk Mamzer is allowed to marry the Jewish people. So why do they say Shtuki Patul? Maybe, since we don't know who the father is, maybe the woman he'll end up wanting to marry, her father will have been his father. And therefore, he'll end up marrying... Oh, so that's exactly the concern. So the concern is that, therefore, he should only marry whom is he allowed to marry. Mamzerim, Gerim, uh, other Shtuki, things like that, people whose kashras is much lower. So we're going to see. So what? Oh, so this is the first suggestion. It's going to be rejected. We say, possibility number one, Shtuki Pasul, Gzera Shema Yisach Aviv. Maybe he'll marry his paternal sister. Elma Ata Shtuki, Shtukit Lo Yisach, Shema Yisach Aviv. So couldn't you say, well, then he should not be allowed to marry anyone, even another Shtuki. That is, a male Shtuki can't marry a female Shtuki. Maybe they have the same father, even if they have two different mothers. Okay. Kokihani, does the same man uh, go out with all the different women in the town and of all of the shtukis so it's a certain the Gemara says that that's an absurd conclusion which is that the suggestion the Gemara rejects the notion that every shtuki in town are all the children of the same man and therefore no matter what still even to marry a shtukit would be would be itself the risk of marrying his sister is very low. Okay? And Charlie, you have a question? Yeah, this is the Babylonian Talmud. In, had this been part of Yushami, they might not have been so surprised at that because their level of licentiousness was unbelievable. Well, in Babel, it was certainly a good concern as well. Uh, I don't know enough to, 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 from the Gemara's perspective on that to comment further, but it's certainly an interesting question. Why can't you marry a Gior or something like that? So, okay, so, but that's exactly the same kind of Elamata. That is a case where we're quite sure, or even 100% sure, that there is no concern that this woman's father is his father, then what's the problem? So, Bashtukit, Lo Yisa, Shema Yisa, Chotome Aviv. Couldn't you also say he should not be allowed to marry Bashtukit? That is, even the daughter of a woman who was a Shuki, and even several steps down, because no matter what, he could end up being related to the per- this uh, woman's father, no matter what. I- even if he knows who the father is, he's not going to know that that's not his father, because he doesn't know who his father is. Ella, La Shechicha, so that case is totally implausible, totally rare. Hakanami La Shechicha, and this case of Bashtukit is also very rare, and it's impossible. It, it, you would never find such a case. The risk is very low. No, no, no. There's not really any good reason to say that Shtuki is Asur. Shtuki is Xerah de Rabbanan. The rabbis made a higher standard and a lower standard for Yuchsin. This part of the main, uh, the theme of this Perek, which is that yeah, some of these laws are not necessarily 100% logical, but they follow because the rabbis decided that there should be that gradation and, and uh, many different tiers. Um, the Maharsha, right at the beginning of the parak, says the ten different levels of Yichus are comparable to the ten different levels of Kedusha in Eretz Yisrael. Going in the first parak of Kalim, it talks about how the land of Israel has a higher Kedusha than other lands, and Jerusalem is, uh, and the walled cities are better than other kinds of cities, and Jerusalem is better than other walled cities, and Beit Hamikdash and going closer and closer. Um, so those ten levels of Kedusha are. are comparable to the ten layers of Yuchsin, that the rabbis instituted those kind of boundaries and protections just as a way of heightening the understanding of people's kashrut, people's, um, uh, you know, trying to maintain their familial status. Interestingly enough, the Rambam, if you look, take a look at the last page of the Rambam's Parish Mishnah, and the Rambam mentioned it somewhere else in the Tshuva, I think, also. He's talking about Yuchus, and um, he says, even the most base Jewish families keep a record of their ancestry going back ten generations. And the Rambam lists his, his family back many generations. You know, he is uh, Moshe ben Maimon, and Maimon is the son of so-and-so, and going back many, many steps through great Dayanim and rabbis who were in Spain at the time. And he tells you what they did. They were Hadayan, they were Harav this. 
so it really is to show that you know families should take uh, care to really you know be proud of their ancestry. You know, many of us, even if our ancestors weren't great rabbis, but they did wonderful things, and it, because of them that we're here. So we should really have uh, a lot of gratitude for that. So I'm a rabbi. Dvar Torah Sufi Kasher. So now we just had the same uh, sugi about Shduki, so now we're going to say about Asufi as well. Now Sufi, yes. I thought yesterday uh, Rabbi Linzer was going in the direction of leniency in general. So is this like, this is like a pushback in a way, right? To say mala asubi yuxin. That is... We have the higher right. standard, right? We have a higher standard, but it, we are acknowledging that it is a rabbinic law. So that means there is still some amount of flexibility about some of these things, and there are wiggle room and ways to get out of them, and also, you know, with rabbinic laws already, there's a lot of places you can build in. Like we said already, the whole notion of safek, as soon as you have a safek about a rabbinic law, then you're home free. So because I was, I was wondering about like a balachuva in, in modern in contemporary. Yeah, exactly. Balachuva marrying into a family that's very concerned right. about this. Where would that family probably focus their uh, bottom line on this well, idea or on the idea that well maybe that person really even though we don't know his parentage. Right. You know. Um, I would think even most balachuva nowadays come from families who we at least know who the parents are. They're t- not totally orphans right. and things like that. Right. Uh, and usually the concern... Of, yeah. Right, so the concern is not as high as something like Shuki or Asufi. It's just a person who may not be from a quote-unquote good family or, or who knows. Uh, Rav Moshe does have an interesting chuba where he talks about there's a, a Brita that's not so well-known for good reasons, not so well-known, that um, there are all these terrible things about someone who's Ben Nida, that is a child who's born to a woman who was in a state of Nida at the time when, when the couple had, uh, when the baby was conceived and Rav Moshe totally because what happened was this family wanted to marry this young man and he was a Balchuva and he came from this family and his mother hadn't been observing Hilchot Nida but he was a really great guy and he was going to be a really good match for their daughter and they really wanted they, you know oh but we read this price so that says it's a bad thing and so Rav Moshe basically demolishes the whole idea and says look in the end if he's a good guy he's a good match for your daughter and you think that he's the right and they're happy together and, and the Gemara talks about all the terrible qualities of a person who's a Ben Nida therefore since he's such a good guy he must not be a Ben Nida so he basically demolishes the whole category um, and there's lots to be said about that which is that what? yeah so that's, a, that's Rav Moshe's Shuvah which deals exactly with this question that is when, right so there are, pl- there are places that people get caught up on Yichus um, but in most cases there's really not anything halachic to be worried about some cases there are but usually not so much okay so Rav says Dvar Torah Asufi Kasher so it's going to be a similar line of argumentation. My time, Aishas Ish, Tola. So what is it again? Asufi is someone totally an orphan, unknown parentage entirely. Asuf, he was Asfoto Minashuk. They just you know found him on the street, and we're going to find out exactly where do you find such a baby in the street, such that he counts as an Asufi or not. So this Asufi, at least at the biblical level, could be kasher. So my time, Aishas Ish, Tola. If there's a woman who who had to give up her baby because and she was married so then of course the baby's father is most likely or even 100% likely to be the father the, the husband mm-hmm. that is her husband is almost entirely likely to be the father of the child and therefore even any married woman who's giving up a child presumably the baby is a kasher anyway so we don't have to worry about Asufi okay so Maika mute Arusot, umiut, shahalach balehelam dinasayam. What about the two other possibilities? That is, arusot, that is women who were married to their husbands but had not yet consummated the marriage and therefore the father is some other man and she had been involved extramaritally um, with another man while she was mikudeshet and now the baby would be a mamzer. Or even nisuot women, women who had consummated their marriages but then their husbands went away to India for a long business trip of several years and in the meantime she got pregnant and had to give up the baby and that's therefore the baby would be a mamzer because she was a married woman so so because there are two other cases which it could be that is pruya a totally unmarried woman and therefore her child would not be a mamzer even with whatever man or uh, a woman that is a married woman even from a nisuin who had to give up her baby because of Ravon during a period of famine. That is, she couldn't feel that she could provide for this baby, and she, this is what their, 
best attempt at trying to give the baby up to adoption, obviously uh, putting a baby, baby in the street is closer to murder than it would be giving the baby to an adoption agency. Basket in the Nile, so it's not murder, obviously, but provide, not being able to provide for a newborn baby, the baby most likely will die unless someone takes care of it. But the Gemara says, have a palgo palgo. That's like 50-50. Babies in baskets on the door of the orphanage. On the door of the orphanage or on the door of Reb Chaim's, uh, Reb Chaim's house. Um, Reb Chaim Brisker, uh, another Reb Chaim story. Um, so supposedly Reb Chaim was the address for, for Asufis. Well, not really Asufis, we'll see. Uh, but when, when people would have children that they couldn't support, they had too many children or they were too poor or anything like that or they were the wrong age or the wrong family or anything like that, Reb Chaim supposedly would wake up several times throughout the night every night just to check his front step because if there was a baby he had to take the baby to, to take care of it um, so Reb Chaim was was the great uh, um, Talmudist and, and Rav of the town um, but he was also the orphanage uh, so it's important to think about what does it mean to be the Rav of a town he, I'm sure he provided for them I don't think he just just uh, raised them in his own home he would probably help to coordinate people who could adopt the children but it's just important that his ad- his house was the address uh, you, you needed a place to drop off a baby that was at that was at the rabbi's house something like that so <laughs> there you go uh, so have a palgo palgo so the Gemara considers that to be 50-50 the Hatorah Amr Loyavo Mamzer Bekalashem a Mamzer can't marry into Kalashem but Mamzer Vada Yavo Ha Mamzer Safek Yavo Yavo Bekal Vada Yavo Ha Bekal Safek Yavo this is the same argument we saw before that is a Safek Mamzer could even marry a kosher Jew and a uh, Mamzer could marry into a Safek Safek kosher Jew uh, and therefore um, in such a case Already, since it's 50-50, it's palgo-palga, because we had two cases on each side now. Obviously, I don't know the incidence rates of each of them, but the Gemara calls it 50-50. It's enough to say there's a suffix either way. Um, so therefore, uh, we, we could say, oh, so this is a worst-case scenario. The Asufi is a suffix mamzer. And therefore, suffix mamzer should still be able to marry a Jewish woman, or, or uh, Asufit should be able to marry a Jewish man. So what's the problem? Sure. Would it not be told of anything? Would it be more to advantage to be told of the Baal? I mean, but she can't be told of the Baal because I mean, they haven't. Look, we, we couldn't contain ourselves. Our understanding of the times, especially in Bavil, was that they were not together. Meaning, they did the Erosin, he would move to some other town, and he would be working there, and she would be living here in I her parents' house. Would be a different story, then. Yehuda is different. We know the uh, mission in Ksuvos says that in Eretz Yehuda, at least during the Tanaitic period or during Zman Amikdash, the the men and women after Erosin would have Yehud together to kind of get to know each other better before uh, they would be married and something like that. Uh, so there, at least there, there is a lower ability to claim uh, that they had not been sexually intimate at that point because uh, already they had had Yichud together. Uh, but in, certainly in Bavel and even in other parts of Eretz Israel at the time, that practice was not, was not tolerated. Um, okay. So the same argument that is Safek Mamzer should be okay. Matam Mamru Asufi Pasul. So why did they say Asufi is Pasul? Shema Yisachel Tomi Aviv. Maybe he'll marry his uh, sister. Elamata Asufi Asufi Lo Yisa. So and then you should say, well, if you're going to say that he's not allowed to marry a kosher Jew because maybe that is she's his sister, so then he shouldn't even be able to marry another Asufi because maybe she's also his sister. Lo Yisa Shema Yisachel Tomi Aviv Bein Meimo. Or even his uh, maternal sister, even With, you know, both a maternal sister and a paternal sister uh, are prohibited of, as arayot. Kohane shadi So you're going to tell me that all of those, all of the asufis in the same town are from the same woman and the same man? Again, the same argument. That is, how can every abandoned child in town be from the same family? Okay, so bad asufi lo yisa shema yisa choto. No, you'll make the same argument. If you're going to tell me that he's not allowed to marry a kosher Jew, then he also shouldn't be able to marry even the descendants one step down because it could also be the same kind of arayot. Um, you know, the, such a person could end up being his father anyway, so therefore it would be his sister. So such a case is totally far-fetched and rare, and therefore such a case is also totally far-fetched and rare. We don't have to worry about it. And so too, even Asufi, that is a, per- a person who has no known parentage at all nonetheless at the Doraita level would be totally kosher because of we have rove we have suffix we have all these halachic principles to rely on that would provide kashrut for such a person nonetheless the rabbis 
held it back a little bit to say, look, if you don't know who your parents are, you shouldn't marry a kosher Jew. Um, which is an interesting point, just to say, they made these gradations within Yichus uh, stricter than what the Torah would demand. Ah, so sperm donate. Okay. No, no, it's a good question. Ask the question. So I mean, so basically, like I thought, like you know, from what I heard, right? That like you know, if a woman is going to do that, that uh, to make sure it's not from a, a Jewish sperm donor. Okay. So this is so, like you know, but if all this is such a meter, you know, then it's the same idea that Malachim sort of or like. So this is a question about, about artificial insemination and sperm donation and things like that, which in many cases have been an incredible resource for people with fertility challenges. Um, and so it's important to note, Rav Moshe Feinstein already, I think in the 60s, uh, has a tshuva, and it's in the first chilek in, in uh, Igor's Moshe, and Rav Moshe rules leniently. He thinks that the child cannot be a mamzer if, even if someone else is doing the act of, of uh, whatever it is, injecting the semen into, into the woman to, uh, uh, for conception and things like that, because that's not an a-, a sexual act. A mamzer has to be created not just from the genetic material of two people who are not allowed to marry each other or through a physical action of, of um, implanting whatever type of, of material, but that it has to be actually through a sexual act. Um, and Satmarov supposedly, uh, Satmarov uh, ruled against her motion. Satmarov very much opposed to artificial intimidation, uh, and fierce machloket. Uh, actually, I was talking with, uh, with Rabbi yesterday about, about this. There's a story, at least, that there was some uh, Satmar Hasidim who were involved in burning some of Ramosha's books because of that. Uh, so, really, it was a, a fierce debate about about obviously Kedusha Sisral and important questions of Yichus, but also about how to provide um, uh, support for people with infertility. And uh, I think nowadays almost every post in the world, as far as I know, maybe I don't know if it's about Satmar, but I, you know, mainstream post I guess you'd say, even in the Haredi Yeshiva world, certainly would rely on Ramosha's position just because it doesn't make any sense otherwise. Because to be a mamzer, you have to have done something wrong. Um, well, the parents have to have done. Right, the parents have done something wrong. But to say that that a, a physical medical procedure, or even not even so medical, but just that it's not it's not a sexual procedure, it's not an act of sex. How could that create mamzerus? Uh, that's really Ramosha's argument. He goes through, and he brings gemaras for it as well, which is very interesting. Some strange gemaras that until now didn't make any sense. People who got pregnant from going to the bath and things like that, and it's like, how can you talk about that? But that's a suggestion that somehow that was the Gemara's way of talking about a case where a woman could have become pregnant from coming in contact with semen uh, even if it were not through a sexual encounter. Um, similar but not exactly uh, identical issue is an olam donation. Right. Uh, and again, some of these questions get dealt with extensively about even, so when we know who the sperm donor is, we know who the egg donor is, or all sorts of things like that, and then how do you c- determine the yichus? Does it only go by the, the birth mother um, does it count as someone who has no halachic father? Can you count the sperm donor as a halachic father or not? And that becomes a question about about mamze- uh, not about mamzerus, but about um, about arayos for such a child to be aware of people who should or should not marry. And then if it was a non-Jewish sperm donor, it would be better and things like that. And then yeah, the question of egg donation. It's a Jew- even a Jewish sperm donor. Well, that's exactly the question. The question of mute. And that's exactly this question. So that the post can deal with that. Uh, I'll say in short. Uh, it, it gets addressed. And some people are Machmir and some people are Mekil. Uh, okay. So Amar of Barhuna. Matu Mahul. What if they found this Asufi baby is found to have been circumcised? So Ein Bo Mishum Asufi. Then such a baby is not considered an Asufi. That is someone whose parents we don't know who he is. We have no idea. There's a baby sitting here. Unknown baby. But he's already been circumcised. Not an Asufi. Asufi means Dropped him off before the meal. Well, this is an error. The non-Jews are not getting circumcised. But certainly, uh, that's an interesting people, question as well. People get circumcised or not? Okay, so that's an interesting question. But here, this yeah. is even saying even a Jewish person who has had a meal, the presumption is that uh, the halachic category of asufi, that is, we're concerned is even the slight suffix that he's a mamzer or that he shouldn't marry into a Jewish a Jewish girl. Uh, in such a case, we would say, look, such a person who's had a meal, the parents were good parents who had to drop him off uh, not that they were not that they were um, people who shouldn't have married each other that is the fact that they kept the baby around for a week and did the meal and hired the moel 
that's enough to say that he's not an Asufi. Right, okay? I would think that it's open and closed Gemara. I would think that's the rule. Uh, the question is whether it's relying on the fact that the non-Jews there didn't have circumcisions or not. I don't know. Here it sounds like it's just saying that the parents had enough care to provide the meal for him. That means that they are kosher parents. You're saying nowadays if a baby shows up on your doorstep, you don't even know whether it's a Jewish baby or not. Yeah. That's even a separate question, which the Gemara even, even doesn't deal with. You know, I'm saying the fact that the presence of a meal doesn't prove anything. Right. Because non-Jews also do meal. More, you know. Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's well, keep going. So, what if they had straightened out his limbs? This is something I guess you have to do with newborn babies. I'm not 100% sure. Nowadays, we don't do that. But back then, they did. They had to kind of, if they were bow-legged or something like that, they would uh, strap them to some kind of frame or something to straighten out their limbs. Rashi says, They straightened out the legs. Okay, so they were doing it in the early 20th century. So, we don't do it nowadays, as far as I know. Maybe they do. Okay, so in so, that, so too, it means that the parents took some care to ensure that this baby grows up properly and, and is healthy. So the fact that the baby was found in the street is not enough of a reason to say that his yichus is in doubt. So he's not an Ashufi. So Shayef Maksha. Yeah? I mean, I'm just not understanding that. Why does that mean that somehow lives in the mom's or whatever it is? So he's not an Asufi. Asufi means totally abandoned, totally neglected. And, and here, and therefore, this is a baby who... It's no, a, no, we don't know. Halakhically, an Asufi cannot marry a Yisrael. Right, and right? if the kid lives for him, he's the kin, We're being Nako. No, he's less puzzled. He, he, we assume that the parents took care of him and, the, and he fell out of the back of the trunk or something. You know, like, and therefore, they were Jew. I don't understand. They're but we assume Jewish. that it's a kosher baby with Jewish parents and that he was wow. perfectly fine. It seems like it's mixing the... Uh, you could say Suffolk to Rabban and Lakula. You could say that. As soon as, as, soon as there was a shown that the parents were taking care of him, we immediately can just say, okay, no, fine. So this kind Relax. of addresses the Yusin thing from, it seems to me, from a uh, behavioral, uh, you know, in a sociological sense. Like, okay, if somebody was looked after as a child, he probably comes from, from a good, good family. family. Right. Not a holistically kosher family. Right. No, I mean, mom, mom, parents but, don't look but after that means, family. right, well, that's... Yeah, because from a sociological point of view, they're embarrassed about it, they want to cover it up. But so the Rishonim here already pick up on this concern and say about Mila in particular, look, so that's kind of a question about how much would parents of a mamzer be willing to really do everything they need to do to ensure that the child grows up properly and has a meal and grows up healthy and things like that. It sounds like at least the stigma, halakhically it's inexcusable, but the stigma was that if you have a mamzer, the mamzer, you don't want to have to deal with the mamzer. You want to give up the mamzer. You want to neglect this child. And so that's at least underlying part some of, of this. Mindset, part of the mindset. Okay, so so if he had been uh, anointed with oil or if he had eyeshadow put on, those are things I guess they used to do to babies. Um, so, so Rami Chomrei Tali Pitka, and if he was um, now, okay, so what is it? Rami, sorry. I lost my Rashi. Okay, Rami Chomrik, uh, so either he was tied up uh, with the kinds of medicinal things, he, he had a necklace that had some kind of um, charms on it or something, or Pitka, he had a, a, an amulet of some kind, or Talikamiya, or he had some other kind of amulets, so Eimbo Mishumasufi. So because, again, the parents are taking care of him, so I don't know, does this count as, as making sure, you know, if you find a kid who has his uh, vaccination slip on his, on his uh, <laughs> jumper, that means he's also not in a Sufi, something like that. Like the parents are taking care of the child, the baby has had medicine, the baby has been taken care of, the baby has been provided for, Okay. Tali Bidikle, what if he's hanging from a palm tree in a basket, presumably, or, or swaddled up? Right? Yeah, something like that. Rock by baby. Okay. So, Ibatile, Chaya, Yeshbo, Mishimasufi. If it is a place where an animal could get to him, so he is an Asufi, because the parents put him there in order that he should get eaten by wild animals. So, in love. You also have a very interesting uh, take on the other Gemara that if, yeah. you know, that if he like, just looks healthy, he's not an Asufi either. Right, that's part of the thing about the oil and things. That, again, that the baby has been cared for, the baby has been provided I mean, for. Without the oil. Like, you know, yeah. 
<coughs> yeah. Robust yeah, the baby's been well fed. Those are all indications that this is a baby coming from a family where they're not throwing him out the door the minute he was born. Okay. Um, okay. Um, okay, so if it was a place where the animal could get to him, and if it was a place in the tree where an animal couldn't get to him, you know, the raccoons are gonna, aren't going to bother the baby, so then he's not an asu because the parents put him there to protect him. Even if it was a place, you know, maybe I'll come back tomorrow or something, I don't know. Um, but something like that. Okay. So, Zardata Simicha Lamata, so if it was in a case where you know this is in some kind of a ditch right it, oh he was hanging on a tree that's called Zardita a different kind of tree okay um, Rashi says called Celerir so I'm not sure what kind of tree that is okay translated sword 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 tree sorb sorb tree oh okay I don't know what kind of tree that is okay okay so Yeshua was a something similar to the palm tree argument which is that if it's in the right kind of a place in the tree that the baby would be safe then the opposite. the opposite why? why? because the tree is because it's a spiky tree or whatever or something or demons attack the trees oh okay oh those kind of trees distant from a city do not harbor okay so that's why because nearby the demons like to hang out near the city and therefore the demons would be bothering the baby but if it was in a tree that was far away from the city then it would be okay okay that's a real question right the trees have the demons in them okay Okay, I'm not an expert on demons, so I don't know. Okay, okay. Uh, okay, so Beikinishna Simichalamata. What if he was found in the shul close to the city? Rabim, and there are a lot of people there. You drop him off at shul. Uh, it's interesting to note also the shul is outside of the city. That's an interesting uh, Babylonian. Um, it was because of the Persian rule they had to build the shuls outside of the city, or perhaps they specifically did it so that for people going to work it would be more convenient. The shul would be out in the fields. So you could go daven and then you would come home afterwards. And there have a number of practices in our davening uh, based on the Babylonian practice that are because the shul was outside of town. If you remember also at the end of the first parak, I forget now which of the Amorim it was, but one of them had to sleep overnight in the shul and killed the demon during when he was davening Marv. Uh, so also, there would be demons in the shuls because the shul was outside of town. Okay. Um, and if you drop him off at shul but it was not so close to the town and there weren't a lot of people going to that shul uh, then it would be an asufi so high period so if it was in a what is this a period of souffle yeah let's say you found a baby I think the, our po- the thrust of this uh, sugya is to say as much as we want to say that the baby is not an asufi whenever case whatever case we can to say the baby is not an asufi we say it's not an asufi that is you have to be the most neglected, most left behind, right? It's a backing off from the Mishnah. The Mishnah sounds like it means that Sufi means someone we don't know who the parents are. Mm-hmm. That's Mala Sibirsin. But now we're backing it off and saying, no, 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 no. It's someone who we don't know who their parents are, who was neglected, who was left out in the abandoned shul far away from town and didn't have a mila and didn't have uh, oil and didn't have his limbs straightened out. All of those other criteria makes it much harder to classify someone as an Asufi. So the category still exists. Um, but it basically you end, up, you end up saying Suffolk Asufi is fine and any kind of Suffolk we can introduce into whether this kid is an Asufi or not uh, we, we leave it behind. So that's really an important principle here that Chazal, that is uh, the Amoraim already are, are pointing us away from categorizing people as Asufi. Um, interesting to consider maybe there was Malach Subiusin they made a higher level Yuchsin and then they backed it off mm-hmm. um, in some sense that is maybe it wasn't sustainable maybe it wasn't people were saying maybe Babylonia had different levels of, of these kind of uh, children being born uh, a lot of possibilities okay so so Hyrapira de Soufle Sufi that's a ditch where they would store the uh, tamarim the dates when they were harvested uh, Rashi says they, or they would put the pits of the dates uh, for the animals to eat because uh, I guess the pits of the dates still have some of the sugar on it so you can imagine cows would wanna, or goats would want to go and lick the sugar off of the date pits so or on the bank of the river oh, so 
Pashri, but in a different part of the bank of the river that is a place where there are fewer people, uh, in that place, because again, if you put the baby down by the docks, maybe it's because you want someone to find the baby. So that's not enough Sufi. But you put the baby down totally far down river from town and no one's going to find the baby, and then someone does find the baby, that's a little bit different. It's interesting to think about Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu really was yeah. someone who was totally found in the bank of the river in the middle of nowhere yeah. in, in Mitzrayim. He had a mashkiach, though. He had a mashkiach, it's true. His <laughs> sister was watching. You know, there's so many beautiful, all the, in the beginning of Sota, all of those um, Midrashim about, about Miriam watching over Moshe Rabbeinu. It's very interesting. You know, uh, Miriam was, what, six years old when she had her Nevua that Moshe Rabbeinu would be born. Uh, and then she contradicted her father. You know, lots of really interesting uh, things going on with, with Miriam and Moshe, their relationship. Obviously, Miriam was always kind of watching over him, making sure he was making the right decisions also. Uh, okay. Well, but in the end, it was for, for his benefit. Obviously, maybe she didn't say it the right way. Uh, but, you know, she was concerned. Uh, and, of course, the Mepharshim big machokas of the Mepharshim there. What is it she was disapproving of, right? It's the machokas, whether she was disapproving of whom he married or whether she was disapproving of the fact that he wasn't spending enough time with his wife. So, obviously, two different uh, important concerns there. Okay. So, it's Sidei Rishus HaRabim Ein Bo Masufi. The edges of the public street doesn't count as an Asufi because, again, it's a protected area. We saw in the uh, first parak of Masech Shabbos that the, the edges, that is the sidewalks or sort of right next to the storefronts in Rosh Hashanah doesn't have the same status of Rosh Hashanah as the middle of the street. So even though Rosh Hashanah 16 Amma wide street um, is a Rosh Hashanah but the edges uh, still have some limitations on how, it's, how they're treated. Uh, and that might be more what we would call Carmelite that's already a rabbinically instituted Rosh Hashanah so here too for Asufi, putting a baby at the edge of the Rosh Hashanah uh, is not really considered to be putting the baby out in Rosh Hashanah. Perhaps the baby's not going to get trampled. If you put him up against the wall uh, by a storefront, there's less risk. And therefore that was the baby we were trying to protect. So if the baby was found in Rosh Hashanah, really in Rosh Hashanah, if it was found in the middle of the street, obviously the baby was in Asufi because the baby was put there, basically put there to die. So Amarabba, Ubishani Rabon, during years of famine, Masufi. If you find a baby during a year of famine, there's no concern about Asufi at all. Because the reason the baby was given up, even from a very good family, is because they're starving. And they need to retain resources to uh, save their other children. Obviously, it's inexcusable to leave a baby to die. I'm not trying to defend it, but just to get inside the mindset of the people who, in that situation, felt that they were compelled to do that, to save their other children, or to save themselves, uh, it's at least uh, understandable. So, Harabim. So that it sounds like it's even better argument than saying from Rishis Harabim. That is Rishis Harabim. So once you say Rava, okay, even any any excusable, understandable reason why this baby would be here, and it applies anywhere, not just Rishis Harabim, not just anywhere, it could be anywhere. So 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 if it was in a in a um, famine year, so it would have killed him, right? It's very hot in here. One second. Okay? Okay? Um, so what is Rebbe talking about? If the baby was put into the middle of the Rishis HaRabim during a famine, and that's the only time you would say in Bumashim Masuki, that is, Rebbe is being more machmir than the previous line. So then, Dishani Rabon, so Katale, so then you just, you're, you should be, that, as if to say, that the goal was just, they could have just killed the baby. Okay? And if he's saying in a Shani Ra'avon, you would say the meaning he's being more Machmir than the previous line. So, So then the previous line said that on the edge of Rosh Hashanah is not an Asufi even when it's not a famine. So Rava was talking about this other opinion of Rabbi Yehuda Barzavi Amarav called Zman Shibashuk Malav. The whole time that he is in the Shuk, that is, while the baby is still there, the parents, if they show up and say, no, 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 that's our baby, the parents would be believed. If he was already gathered back from the shuk, then no longer are they uh, believed that it's their child. That is, um, at what point does the baby get the status or no status of a Sufi, but the parents could no longer come back and claim him as their own? Uh, so in a year of famine, what Rebbe was saying is he's not called an Asufi because the parents could show up later and claim the baby. But in a not in a year of famine already as soon as the baby would be taken back uh, out of the shuk then the parents would no longer be believed so my time because as soon as he's been called an asufi you can't get rid of that shame that's like yasakol as soon as everybody's heard about oh yeah there was an asufi found in the street his name is joe 
so then, no offense, Joe. Uh, so um, then, once the baby's been called an Asufi, you can't uh, you can't get rid of that name at that point. So the parents couldn't show up and remove that status. Rava says, if it was a year of famine, even after the baby was taken in from the street, the parents could show up and claim him, and he would not be an Asufi. That means what Rava is saying is that the Asufi status, once it kicks in, there's Nasaf Minashuk. Uh, there's irreversible, but that's only in a, a year of plenty. But in a year of famine, the parents could show up and reclaim the baby after seemingly any amount of time. Presumably, I don't know, you know, if there's a cutoff, a long-term cutoff. Years would be a major question. But at least uh, in the short term, perhaps a couple of days or even a few weeks, the parents could show up later and say, no, 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 that was our baby. You know, these, uh, you know, these Holocaust stories. Yeah, exactly, Holocaust for sure. Uh, and you know, you hear about people. You know, I I was reunited with my sister. I was reunited with my aunt, and things like that. It becomes a really interesting question of Arios. Actually, uh, there are cases. Someone falls in love with someone in a DP camp, and they you trace it back and back and back, and they find out that they're aunt and uh, 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 aunt and nephew, or they find out that they're siblings, uh, and then you have real Arios questions. Yeah. An example uh, from even further apart. Uh, Trotsky's grandson, who is allocically Jewish and still alive today, uh, discovered that his um, sister had survived Stalin's purges in the late 1980s. Oh, wow. And he flew, he flew to uh, Moscow to see her as she was dying of cancer. Okay. So that's a big deal. So let's yeah. see how far we can go in a few more minutes. Um, uh, we have a few more minutes. Okay. So we're right halfway down on Ein Gimel Amidbeis. Amar of Kizda. Shlosha Neimanim Laalter. There are three types of people who are believed immediately, but meaning after any amount of time that is not immediately afterward, they would no longer be believed. They're only believed in the moment. So Eluhain, a Sufi, a case of a Sufi, that is the parents of an Asufi, can show up and say, no, 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 it was our baby. Chaya, a midwife, who is delivering babies, and a woman who is trying to uh, exempt other women of something. We're going to see what the, uh, it's talking about. So, Asufi Hada Amran, the Asufi case we just talked about, that is this opinion of Rabbi Yehuda that was quoted by Rava, uh, qualified by Rava, about um, when is it that the parents would be believed that the child is theirs, so whether he was ne'esaf min hashuk or not, that is, whether the baby had been collected from the marketplace yet or not, whether or not the baby has been called an asufi or not, and Rava said we're even, would allow the parents to show up even afterward if it had been a year of famine, but in a normal case, they would only be believed la'altar immediately. So chaya ditanya, a midwife, as we see in this b'risa, chaya ne'emenet lomar The midwife is believed about either two women giving birth, or it seems like the case that actually has an afkamina is talking about in a case of two twins, which of the twins is the Bechor? Um, so if there are two twin boys being born, in particular boys, uh, you know, we have the story of Tamar and Yehuda, so Tamar gave birth to two uh, twin boys, and it was a com- complicated delivery, such that the midwife actually played a very important role in identifying who was the Bechor. Uh, so, It's only in a case where she did not leave the birthing room and come back. But if she left the birthing room and then came back, things could have gotten all mixed up while she was gone. You know, you hear all these stories, they switch two babies, babies look very similar to each other when they're first born, uh, and so there's not so much room, you know, you could get mixed up. Mm-hmm. Even a professional midwife could easily get confused. So, if she's still sitting on the birthing stool, that's when she's believed. And if she even got up or turned her head or something like that, even then she wouldn't be believed. So, Rabbi Eliezer is even more machmir than the Tanakhama. So, in the case where she turned her head or turned away from the um, woman giving birth, in such a case, Rabbi Eliezer would say she's not Naaman, and the Tanakhama would say that she is Naaman. So poter chavrotea mahi. What case is poter chavrotea? A woman trying to exempt her friends. Ditnan a Mishnah from Nida. Shalosh nashim shahayu yishenev mitachat. There are three women sleeping in the same bed. Nimta dam tachat achas mehen, and there's a blood found underneath one of them, or found in the bed. So kulan tameos. Then all three of them are considered tamei from suffix. That is. This sounds like a case of Safik Tuma Birshuta Yachid, uh, and therefore, uh, we have to say Safik Tuma that each one of these three women could have been Nida because of this. So, Badka Achas Mehem Benim Tmea, if one of them performed a Bedika and found out that she was Nida, 
So she then would be considered Nida, and that removes the suffix from the other two women. Leave it here, but just one point. The Ravid in Bali Hanefesh, talking about the halachos of doing bidikas for Nida, the Ravid contrasts the le- threshold, necessary threshold of per- the burden of proof uh, for different ki- types of bidikos for Nida. In this case, to be poter, uh, chavrotea, is actually the lowest burden of proof. That is, even a minimal amount of proof, even a minimal bedika, what the Ravid calls kinuach, just wiping, but not any kind of real internal bedika, is, uh, would be all that's necessary in order to evaluate uh, the believability in this case, that one woman and not the other two were needed because of this.